You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Kai Fitzgerald speaks with Virgil Souter, the director of the City of Bloomington Animal Care and Control, about a new pet ordinance. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel reports on a fire at a Walmart distribution center in Plainfield, Indiana. But first, your local headlines. At the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission meeting on March 21st, commissioners discussed the redevelopment of the old hospital site. Commission member Randy Cassidy proposed to extend a contract with J.S. Held to find adequate developers for the Hopewell neighborhood. As you all know, we've been using, uh, originally actually, there there were core uh, planning strategies has been our consultant. They were consultant for the parking garages, but we also hired them to do, uh, to help sell the Hopewell site, the legacy hospital site. And they were acquired and they changed their name to JS Held. And so we have, we want to continue using them. They've been uh, fantastic for us, but we wanted to extend their contract through 2022. Cause as you know, this is the time that the Hopewell site's kind of heating up and, and those kind of services are vital to keeping on task and keeping on timeline uh, for that, that project. So what this addendum does is this, this essentially extends that contract through the end of 2022, and it would cost us an additional $250,000 for those services for 2022, which would be the grant, bring the grand total not to exceed amount of their contract to $367,342. You'll see in the packet, we've included both the amendment uh, that we've agreed to kind of the services, which includes breakdown of staffing and costs in addition to the original contract and the how it fits into the overall project budget, which originally, just to draw your attention, we had we had budgeted 367,000 total, and this this bumps it up by 342 dollars to 367,342. Crowley clarified that this contract would help to ensure that developers propose projects that fit within the city's master plan for the former hospital site. The other thing that is involved in this. Um, If you recall back several years ago, we began to look at uh, a a role that we were referring to as as an owner's representative. Um, And essentially what that role is, is to uh, prepare for parcel, for the the sale and or other disposition of parcel, um, um, parcels to to pick, go find and pick the right developers to d- determine whether those developers are actually, um, you know, uh, proposing projects that that are what are aligned with the master plan, and then to get them in over the finish line and get them building. Um, so we were engaged in a search a while back to find that function, 
Um, and uh, we, we put that on hold, uh, but we find, you know, given the, um, given the timing of, of the project right now, it's a good time to reopen that. Um, one of the benefits I think that JS Health brings is that it's more than just project management as a company and they bring um, an embedded owner's representative function. Um, so what we're able to do is jumpstart that process through this agreement. So JS Health can kind of help us get going on that while at the same time helping us do an evaluation of, of the longer term owner's representative uh, function, uh, which may or may not be JS Held, but that uh, but over the long term to, to set us up for success for the for for what will be a multi-year project. The commission voted unanimously to extend the contract with JS Held. The commission also discussed a contract with Axis Architecture for design work on the new Trades District Technology Center. Crowley provided some background knowledge on the agreement. All of you know, uh, I, th I believe already, that Axis Architecture has been working with the, the city and the, and the team for the EDA uh, uh, grant, which is the Trades District Technology Center. They've been working with us now almost, uh, almost a year. Um, I think. And so uh, what this agreement does is it, it really just kind of locks in and formalizes the, um, the uh, fees and responsibilities that, that they have for the project moving forward. Um, you'll see in the, in the resolution, uh, we, we, we had very thorough vetting process um, at, at the time that we were beginning to work to get the, um, the grant, to pursue the grant. The grant was awarded. Uh, Axis did a, a lot of work, uh, both in, in helping us to put together the grant, but then also to uh, redesign. If you remember, we had to we had to kind of downsize the building a little bit uh, based on available funding. So they've been very involved in the whole process. And essentially, this is setting up for what we hope is is really the the meat of all of this, which is the process of completing um, finalized designs, costing all of that out, going to bid, and then ultimately uh, building the building. Um, so, um, you know, this is in line with the uh, presentation and proposal they've given us originally. Uh, you'll see that that uh, really on the fee structure, we're trying to be as detailed as possible. Um, one of the issues that everybody should be aware of is that the um, cost estimate that was put together at the time that we submitted for the grant has changed based on construction costs and supply chain issues. Uh, so one of the things we wanted to do is reflect in the agreement that even if construction costs are going up, because fees like this typically are a percentage of construction costs, we wanted to lock it in at the amount that was originally conceived, because in, in our opinion, the, the, the design fees shouldn't change, shouldn't increase if construction costs increases. There's no material um, change in the effort necessary. It's just the underlying cost structure. So you'll see that that's why it was reflected that way in the agreement. So you'll see it's a percentage against the original construction cost plus uh, some lead um, consulting and, and design work that has to be done to meet the city's ordinance. One commission member asked what the timeline looks for the agreement. Crowley replied that there will be a gap in funding that the commission should prepare for. From a timing perspective, things are you know on track. We are trying to get uh, you know so so they have presented us uh, some some schematic design um, you know updates and costs associated with that. Obviously, the we have to go to the final kind of cost estimating and then bidding process. So that's ahead of us still. I would like to reiterate, and I think I've mentioned this before to uh, the RDC, but just to reiterate, 
that um, there will be a gap between the original estimate of costs and what actual costs will likely come in at. Um, that gap can only be filled with uh, incremental funding. You know, obviously, uh, the, the the alternative would be to further downsize the building to try to fit it into that uh, construction cost estimate. But having done that once already, we feel like really the only option would be to uh, to fill that gap with additional funding. Um, and we are starting to look at what what options may exist for that. Uh, we certainly believe that we have put ample local funding on the table. Um, so it's really looking for sources beyond local uh, public funding. The resolution passed unanimously. The next Redevelopment Commission meeting will be held on April 4th. Up next, WFHB correspondent Kai Fitzgerald speaks with Virgil Sauter, the director of the City of Bloomington Animal Care and Control, about a new pet ordinance. We turn to Fitzgerald for more. Bloomington City Council voted in late December to prohibit the sale of cats and dogs from local pet shops. Ordinance 2145 to amend Title VII would fine each store $500 per violation taking effect on January 1st of 2023 in a hope to allow local pet shops to adapt to this ordinance, mainly affecting local shops Anthony's Pets and Delilah's Pet Shop. Virgil Sauter, director of City of Bloomington Animal Care and Control, speaks with WFHB News regarding the contents of Bloomington Ordinance 2145. What it comes down to is all pet stores in Bloomington cannot sell cats and dogs in their stores. So we currently, this year is the last year before, well, we're in that kind of in-between Stage. So they have this year to kind of cease selling cats and dogs. So we had to, up until this point, we had two stores in Bloomington that in addition to selling supplies and like pocket pets and, and fish, um, there were two that sold um, cats and dogs as well. And so what, what this ordinance does is it, it basically just they can continue in the city limits if they are if they cut out their um, sale of cats and dogs. One of the complications or concerns with this ordinance was its timing. It was possible if this ordinance was immediate, the current animals were going to be dumped or disposed of with haste in order to comply with the sudden policy. To combat this, the city council voted to postpone the enactment of this policy until January 1st of 2023. Luckily, this would allow enough time for those businesses to rethink their business model and marketing strategies. The owner of Delilah's Pet Shop has spoken at Bloomington City Council meetings in the past year, speaking out against this ordinance. Sauter goes on to discuss the specificities of this issue. The, the council decided to give them a year, and part of that was knowing that they had potential contracts already for getting animals in. And, of course, had animals in their stores and wanted to make sure that they were um, placed appropriately rather than just needing to be dumped. So that was what that year was, was to either to allow them to make that change, to transfer out of the city limits if they choose to operate under the same 
operation standards that they are currently, or to make that change to a pet shop that does not sell cats and dogs, but you know might still sell the supplies, or like you said, grooming or things like that. Pet breeding has only been a widespread practice within the last hundred years. In fact, humans created pet breeds as a means to entertain the wealthy in Victorian England. Beforehand, dog and cat breeds were non-existent. Pet breeding is the genetic selection for specific characteristics within the animal that are considered desirable. This often leads to breeders, including puppy mills, to breed within the family. This means that most purebred animals are actually a result of inbreeding. This causes these animals to have very little genetic diversity, making it difficult for them to fight off genetic disease or infection. In fact, the average lifespan for an English bulldog, a common purebred dog in the modern day, is seven years due to the breed's inability to combat disease and infection, likely them developing cancer in year six or seven. Now, while most animal shelters or humane societies are either required to spay and neuter their animals or to simply prevent more strays, pet shops, at least in Bloomington, are not required to do so. Sauter elaborates on this. As far as animals sold from pet shops, they're not required to be spayed or neutered. It's never been part of our local ordinance and and nothing that we've um, changed. So this year we are pretty much inspecting them the same way we have in the past. This can cause overpopulation in mills and shops, leading to more strays and less available space in shelters. Now, some shelters are kill shelters, which means that when there is no available space, they euthanize their oldest residents. Most non-shelter animals or purebred animals are a result of years of inbreeding, leading them to have mutated genes that disfigure particular, quote, desirable characteristics, unquote. For example, corgis were bred for their short and cute legs, leaving them to have unnaturally short legs in comparison to their disproportionate torso, making it virtually impossible for them to run. Pugs often have genetic or pre-existing breathing conditions that often lead to their deaths due to their overbreeding for the short and small snouts. Breeding is simply the result of people performing science experiments on animals because they want them to look a certain way. Genetics aside, puppy and kitten mills also often ignore the needs and comfort of both the mother and their litter to maximize the production volume and therefore profits. Ethically speaking, the safest option for both you and your pet's health is to adopt from shelters because those animals have much more variety in their genetic diversity, allowing their natural genes more room to combat disease, leading long and happy lives, and less medical issues in the future. From a moral and ethical standpoint, this ordinance is the saving grace for animals in Bloomington. From WFHB News, I am Kai Fitzgerald. Last week, a Walmart distribution center in Plainfield, Indiana, was caught ablaze. WFHB environmental news correspondent Nathaniel Weinsapple explains what happened and the environmental effects of the fire. A week ago, 
Employees of the Walmart Fulfillment Center in Plainfield, Indiana, just outside of Indianapolis, were surprised that the fire alarm was ringing throughout the building. Having just had a fire drill a few days earlier, another one so soon did not make much sense. Nonetheless, the employees did as they practiced and headed towards the exits. It wasn't until 911 was called did the workers realize that this was not a drill. This fire was the start of a multi-day blaze that engulfed the 20-football field-sized facility in flames and smoke. The scale of the fire could be seen from space, with the smoke being seen by meteorologists on satellite imagery. Plainfield Fire Territory Chief Brent Anderson was quoted as saying that it was the largest fire he and his fellow firefighters had ever fought during his over 20-year career. Anderson is still unsure as to how the fire started but there are reports that flammable clothes and packing materials were found near where the fire likely originated. All of the employees made it out safely, and only one firefighter suffered from minor burns. Serious concerns have arisen concerning the pollution caused by the fire, specifically related to air quality issues and toxic debris around the area. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has been monitoring the air and water quality since the fire began, with a specific focus on the area around the Walmart Fulfillment Center and the region downwind of the smoke. At the current moment, the pollutant of most concern is fine particulate matter, which takes the form of microscopic soot or dust particles. These have the ability of layering inside human lungs and lead to breathing problems, including asthma and even increased risk of cancer. High levels of exposure in the youth and the elderly could be particularly dangerous. The Friday after the fire began was particularly rainy, and researchers with the EPA suspect that a lot of the particulate matter exited the atmosphere and came down to the surface in the rain. The EPA plans to remain vigilant in its monitoring of the water quality. For Hoosiers living near the facility or in the path of the smoke direction, the EPA has offered up a few guidelines to help keep you safe. Fallen debris and ash should be removed and the area clean, but not without proper protections. Recommendations include the wearing of N95 masks and gloves to help keep the contaminants off the body. Another piece of advice is to clean the coated surfaces with a hose instead of a leaf blower, as the blower could cause more of the pollutants to enter the air. Pets should not drink from contaminated water sources, including puddles on the street. If any citizen is still concerned about the environmental and health effects of the blaze, the Hendrick County Health Department has set up a new hotline to receive questions from Hoosiers. That phone number is 317-718-6052. To repeat, that phone number is 317-718-6052. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel.
Up next, Dave Seastrom of the Brown County Hour offers his thoughts on the recent rainfall we've experienced in southern Indiana. We turn to Dave Seastrom for more. Rain has been a reoccurring theme here in the Old Northwest Territory, and we're not the only ones affected by our now all-too-common torrential rain events. Living at the top of a ridge has its distinct advantages, but we are far from immune from the effects of flooding. For us, it's not about getting flooded, it's about getting flooded in. The difference between the two is if you're flooded, the water invades your home or property, and if you're flooded in, the water has collected in the low spots on the roads and you can't go anywhere. Obviously, it's better to be flooded in than flooded out, but both conditions have their consequences. The worst of it is when your house is inundated with flood water and all of your property is destroyed. Because we've experienced multiple heavy rain events in the last few years, most of the low-lying property that's prone to flooding in our area has been abandoned. At the tail end of North Shore Drive, just before you get to the railroad crossing in Trevlack, there was a number of properties that were flooded out time and again. As I recall, after the five-inch rain event of 2019, FEMA buyout money was made available to some of those folks, and all but one family took advantage of this opportunity. The folks who chose to stay had their trailer elevated on treated six-by-sixes. And it does stay above the water, but it's completely surrounded when it floods. I've seen it in those conditions a few times, and all I can say is I wouldn't want to stay there when it's surrounded by fast-moving water. Likewise, there's a low area in Trevlack next to Bean Blossom Creek that was prone to flooding even before these huge rain events became so common. At the first sign of flooding, those unfortunate families would pile everything they could into their cars and drive up to the causeway, stay in their vehicles until the water receded, and then return home to clean up the mess. Several of those families took advantage of the FEMA money, and they've also moved to higher ground. At one point, the reoccurring floods in Trevlack attracted state media attention, and on a slow news night that happened to be raining, we could count on seeing the familiar faces of our neighbors on TV as they recounted the tales of high water and property destruction. Whenever that happened, my mother would call to see if we were all right. Time and again, I had to remind her that we live on a ridge top that's 930 feet of elevation, and we don't get flooded. We get flooded in. Our neck of the woods is comprised of ridges and valleys, and the roads that were built on the old Indian trails located on the ridge tops don't flood. But the steep hills lead to deep valleys, and when enough rain falls, the water accumulates in those valleys, and the roads that run through them are flooded out. It doesn't take long for flood conditions to develop. If we have a sustained rain that lasts throughout the night, or all during the day, we know that by the next morning, all of the low-lying roads will be covered with water, and there's nothing to be done about it until the water recedes. The length of time it takes to recede is dependent on how much rain we've had. You might think that the water recedes as soon as it stops raining, and sometimes that's true. But when we've had one of these big rain events, the water backs up, and it can take several hours or longer before the roads are passable again. As 
seasoned Brown Countyans, we know better than to cross a road that's underwater. Sometimes there's a temptation to drive on a flooded roadway, especially if you have somewhere to go. But the danger lies in what you don't see, and it would be too easy to get hung up on a downed tree hidden in the swirling waters and be swept away by the swift-moving torrent. I'm reminded of a story I heard in Maine a few years ago. Some friends were moving a large amount of plywood and two-by-fours on top of a canoe. An old Mainer was watching them load up, and when friends asked him what he thought, he said, Bigger fools than you have drowned in these waters. That response gave them pause, and they decided to tow the load instead. Crossing floodwaters is a big nope for us, and it's much better to develop an attitude of patience. Sure, there are places to go and things to do, but none of that matters if you have to swim for your life in freezing water. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. The Brown County Hour airs the first Sunday of each month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. on WFHB Community Radio. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzapfel, Noel Herhusky-Schneider, and Cade Young in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Kai Fitzgerald. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, 
individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer 